another episode of Be The Vessel Podcast. I call myself an intuitive psychologist, and I interview those called to the healing arts with various ways of knowing, serving, and channeling the most powerful medicine for our ultimate return to wholeness. David Hanscom, MD, practiced complex orthopedic spine surgery for 32 years. He quit his practice in Seattle, Washington to present his insights into solving chronic pain, which evolved from his own 15-year battle. He eventually recovered from the ordeal and discovered that mental pain was the biggest issue. Anxiety is the pain, David says. His book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, systematically presents established treatments for chronic mental and physical pain, which the current medical establishment is overlooking. The self-directed action plan is available at docjourney.com, which will be available in the show notes. On this website, David reflects the approaches of hundreds of patients who have escaped from chronic pain. His latest book is Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with a Surgeon's Advice, and the book is intended for healthcare providers and patients alike to make an informed decision about undergoing spinal surgery. Additionally, and most excitedly, David recently launched a movement called Dynamic Healing, which recognizes the interaction between stress and a person's capacity to cope. At the root is the idea that an overwhelmed person subjected to sustained levels of flight or fight hormones will inevitably develop unpleasant symptoms and serious chronic illnesses. David offers a way to safety, to healing, and to living a life free of pain and full of creativity. So please enjoy this episode with Dr. David Hanscom, and may it be an invitation, a gift, and a medicine to all who are ready to heal, to feel, and to find the roots of safety in order to live a life of freedom. Hi, David. Thanks so much for being here, and welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. It's great to meet you, finally, after how many years? Many years. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's really a good place to start is, you know, I really discovered your work from being on this um, famous TMS listserv, maybe not famous to most people, but from those who are familiar with John Sarno's work and that burgeoning field of mind-body medicine, it, it, it's just been such an incredible resource to, to have been on that listserv as um, a graduate student, you know, interested professionally, but also personally. And from being on there, you know, reading lots of really cool people's um, uh, perspectives, including your own. And so I'll start with um, one specific uh, person and theory that, you know, I had learned about from my own graduate training, but but you started writing about a lot. And I actually listened to your podcast with Stephen Porges, um, which really furthered my own exploration of polyvagal theory and just really learning a ton about the nervous system, regulating stress. Um, and so my first question would be how you how you first connected with Porges and, and his work. Well, without going into a lot of detail, you know, I was in chronic pain myself for 15 years. Yeah. When I say chronic pain, that means mental and physical pain. I had 17 different physical and mental symptoms. I did not know what happened to me. I had migraine headaches, my ears were ringing, feet were burning, stomach issues, back pain, neck pain, extreme anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. 
and I had no idea what was going on and nobody could help me. And so I went into what I call the abyss and I came out of it basically by accident in 2003. Then I met Howard Schumer in 2009 who put the mind-body syndrome concepts into my brain, which changed everything. Yeah. So all of a sudden I had a structure that made sense to me. So I wrote my first book in 2012 called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roman About a Chronic Pain. The second edition was published in 2016. And we sold a lot of books. And I went through a, a publicist and I get connected with a senior editor of Psychology Today. And she's the one that introduced me to Stephen Porges. Oh, wow. So we met um, virtually about 2020. It's been almost three years now. And we started talking and chatting. And we realized that these conversations were important because what happened, he did not know much about chronic pain. And I'm embarrassed to say this, I learned this in medical school, <laughs> but I had forgotten about the role of the autonomic nervous system. And it's basically regulates your entire body to this millisecond. And he, we started taking all these mind-body concepts and putting them in terms of the autonomic nervous system. It's called the polyvagal theory. And the bottom line is that you have a sympathetic nervous system that keeps you activated and alive and taking care of things. Then you have a parasympathetic system that calms things down and it's an ongoing dynamic balancing act. And so the vagus nerve is about 80% of the of the parasympathetic common nervous system, if not more. And he spent his entire life studying the vagus nerve. So what he's found out is that your human's capacity to get along with each other depends on a term called co-regulation. And the vagus nucleus is very much connected to the facial nerves, the eye muscles, the facial, you know, all these nuclei are together. And so when you walk up to another person, you have to decide whether the person is safe or dangerous. And, and other mammals do the same thing. So the facial expression and co-regulation and tone of voice are all connected to the vagus nucleus. So if I perceive you as safe, then my vagus nerve kicks in and life moves on. If I perceive you as unsafe, then the sympathetic nervous system kicks into gear and I go on guard or in fight or flight. We actually inadvertently formed a work group that meets twice a month now, the first and third Wednesdays of the month, meets for one hour, we have speakers from all over the world talking about different aspects of the polyvagal theory. And the clinicians are just stunned because if you look at the chronic disease, mental and physical, in terms of the autonomic nervous system, it fits together perfectly. It's, everything is completely explained just by the way the body functions. Because we'll, anyway, we'll go into the problems. Yeah, no, there's, there's so many paths to explore from that. But what I want to just follow up on, Firstly, you know, something I also want to ask is that you you just mentioned that you came out of your pain by accident. So that's interesting. I want to ask about that. But but what I also wanted to follow up on is, is it's such a match made in heaven because you alluded to this, which is that Porges wasn't so familiar with chronic pain. And I can say going through graduate training in clinical psychology, you know, they talk about integrative medicine, but not in the way that I came to experience it personally, which is, you know, starting to learn from, like you said, Schubiner and Sarno and and people like yourself who were treating it on the front lines. Um, it, the way integrative medicine was explained to me in 
in grad school was like, you know, just helping doctors understand what emotions are, which is like, all right, I think there's probably a way to go further with this. And right. I could see it from this, this melding. It felt to me like this was the most integrative platform for how to work with pain and, and doctors like yourself. And even me, um, you know, I learned a bunch about co-regulation and, and, you know, what, what was referred to as attachment theory and early attachment relationships and caregiver. You know, I was working from that framework, but having it explained in the way that Porges did made it, made it, um, really accessible to me. So that was, um, that was, uh, that was really exciting and it was really informative and, and I'm grateful and I'm, I'm grateful that, that you guys are continuing to work together. Those, um, offerings sound really expansive, bringing in people from all over the world. Yeah, it turns out that, um, have you heard the term called medically unexplained symptoms? Yeah. And, you know, that really was related to what I was experiencing. You know, I got this diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome, but, you know, these widespread pain and fatigue syndromes are basically medically unexplainable because they had uh, lists of criteria, but but no medical ideology. So I wrote an article for Psychology Today. It's called MUS. It started in the family practice literature about 2002, and it could not be more wrong. I mean, every symptom in the body is explained by the body's physiology, every one of them. Because if you're in fight or flight physiology, that means adrenaline, cortisol, histamines, inflammatory proteins called cytokines, your metabolism goes up from the cortisol. So your body's in fight or flight. Every cell in your body is bathed in this stress environment. So that's why that's what creates symptoms. It's like a parked car has no symptoms, right? You have to turn the car on. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with the word physiology, physiology is how the body functions. And the body is incredibly complex. We have 30 trillion cells in the body. And when you're in fight or flight, every cell is bathed in this fight or flight environment. So it's, it should be the term should be medically explained symptoms. And can I talk about the dynamic healing model just for a second? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So this is where Dr. Porges, by the way, his wife, Sue Carter, is the one of the top people in the world with oxytocin, which is also a very social bonding drug. Ah, yes, yes. So she's incredible. So the two of them are just a powerhouse team. And the clinicians, again, were just flabbergasted, overwhelmed, speechless with what we're learning because this is not being taught in medical school. So we're on a structural model that a bone spur or, or arthritis is causing pain or causing symptoms. But... The way the body functions, including every living creature, especially mammals, you have your circumstances or stresses or threats, whatever you want to call them, challenging to stay alive. So you have your environment, or I call it the input. Then you have your nervous system consisting of receptors taken in this input. And you have the central nervous system, the midbrain, the spinal cord, the peripheral nerves, and the autonomic nervous system. And we give them names to talk about them, but they're basically one system. Your entire nervous system is out there taking a sensory input, and your nervous system can be either calm or hyperactive. And if it's hypervigilant or hyperactive, it takes less stress to set off what's called fight or flight or the output. So if your body perceives, when your stresses are perceived by the brain to be a problem, your body goes into fight or flight, or we call threat physiology, and you're fired up. So what happens, you have a chemical reaction, you're threatened, and your body's in fight or flight, that sensation, my cat has the same sensation, but humans have a word called anxiety. So anxiety is a result of this, of this threat. It's not the cause. So in medicine, we're treating just symptoms, and the root cause is actually the balance between your stresses and your nervous system. 
And so what happens is that we don't know our patient's stresses or circumstances. We don't know their background or their coping skills. And we're treating just symptoms where the root cause is the interaction between the two. So the way, so the essence of all chronic disease, mental and physical, and that's maybe a different conversation, is sustained threat physiology. The way you heal is that you minimize the time in threat physiology and maximize your time in safety. And in safety, your body actually rebuilds itself. You have dopamine, serotonin, rewards chemical. You have growth hormone. You have anti-inflammatory cytokines. And your body's actually resupplying itself and actually truly healing. So we can't do that as, as humans. Your, your own body can. And so there's a lot of ways of actually processing your input, processing the input differently, of ways of increasing the resilience of the nervous system, and also directly regulating your body's physiology out of fight or flight into safety. So we call it dynamic healing. So at the end of the day, you want less threat, threat physiology, more safety, and you can actually sit through the input, the nervous system, and the output, and it's not that hard. So as a spine surgeon, I'm watching model medicine be on a structural basis, which doesn't explain anything. Mm-hmm. That's why they call it MUS, or medically unexplained symptoms. Yeah. And what the MUS diagnosis does, it takes away hope. You're, it's just, that it, it's not about being at a dead end. And so you and I are in the same pathway of just being stuck in chronic pain. And I've been pain-free now for about 20 years. It's a miracle. Mm-hmm. And you know how dark it can get. And you come out of that hole and it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting to me, um, reflecting as you're speaking, is, you know, there's complexity to what you say. But I think what struck me about, you know, coming more into nervous system language, even after all my training, is that it simplified things a bit. Because, you know, from the psychological perspective, like, yes, we were we were trained to be aware of the nervous system, but you we get so caught up in the drama of the stories, the drama of the relational conflicts and all the all the playing out between dynamics between people, which is endless. That's just why there are endless sources of movies and TV shows because there's endless dramas to be told. And a lot of therapists get caught there. But if we come back to some simplification of like, Where's where's the nervous system? Where's our level of stress? How is the emotion energy in our body contributing, impacting, influencing, you know, our belief system and the way we're perceiving reality? There there is really a way to simplify things to help us address any drama and I think like you say, any symptom that there's always going to be an explanation and that we don't always need to get caught up in some of the complexities of where our mind takes us, but we can learn about what's going on in the body. It actually, it reminds me because I'd read this book uh, called Cured by a Harvard psychiatrist named uh, Jeffrey Rediger. What's it, what's it called? It's called Cured. Okay. And, um, and he wrote this book about like spontaneous remissions and incredible stories of recovery from diagnoses that were terminal, terminal and previously considered incurable. And it reminds me of what he said, which is that doctors would traditionally call these stories miracles and then not ex- not explore them any further. But when you give right. it a, a label like a miracle, then it it's left on, unexp- it's only a miracle until you explain it. So explain just it. like yeah. medically unexplainable stays that way until you, you learn how to explain it. And I feel that uh, my mission and, and, and yours as well is to just expand that base of, of, of what we can explain, you know, um, I think humbly so, because, you know, I think in a lot of ways life is, there's meant to be mystery and uncertainty, and that's how we move through fear. 
but a lot of the ways that we get stuck, particularly in the labeling, you know, it's like the labels, per, you know, um, appear to explain things, but labels don't explain anything, you know, diagnosis. They, they, cover, they cover things up badly. Yeah. yeah. And they leave us kind of imprisoned by them, even if they feel a little bit comfort, uh, comforting right. at first. Yeah. No, I'd love to talk about this maybe under the podcast about these obsessive thought patterns that torture us. Um, it's all based on cognitive distortions, which labeling is a big one. And this thing called self-esteem is we try to pursue that to help compensate for these massive survival reactions. If I had one message to get out to the world is that this word anxiety. Yeah. So it is not a diagnosis. It's just a word that humans use yeah. to describe the sensation generated by threat physiology. Yeah. But the problem is that it's a million times stronger than your conscious brain. It's a million to one. Yeah. So you have no say over it. As Bruce, Lip a friend of mine is Bruce Lipton, <laughs> wrote a book called Biology Believe. Yeah. His point is is that it's automatic. There, these reactions are automatic. They're hardwired. Every living creature has it, including humans. We have no say over them. Mm -hmm. We can't control. Them. And so anxiety is a result of stress. It's not the cause. It is not a psychological diagnosis. It's the driving force that causes a lot of psychological issues. But I'm going to give a very simplistic explanation of thoughts versus emotion. This is very orthopedic, so excuse me on this. <laughs> no, it's good. So the problem that humans have, and I think that consciousness is the essence of all chronic disease. And the reason why I say that is that we now know from UCLA that thoughts and emotions are processed in a similar part of the brain. I'm sorry, unpleasant thoughts and emotions are processed in a similar part of the brain as physical pain. But you can't escape your thoughts. And repressed thoughts are even worse. So every human being has some level of sustained fight or flight based on they can't escape their thoughts. So that reaction creates the stress reaction and we feel anxious. But unpleasant thoughts are sensory input. The emotions are what you feel. So if you're full of oxytocin and dopamine, you feel content, safe, relaxed, playful, whatever you want to say is what we feel. And you're agitated, hyper alert, guilt, ashamed, whatever, you're in a threat physiology. So we have words to describe it that my cat doesn't. So the reason why this is so critical is that we keep treating anxiety psychologically. It's not responsive to rational interventions. There's a lot of ways of regulating your physiology, but talking your way out of it is not one of them. Then we use this thing called self-esteem to sort of compensate for, the, for these intentionally unpleasant feelings because again the survival sensations and the species of creatures who didn't pay attention to these cues just didn't survive so this thing that we call anxiety we're trying steve portis and i are trying to get rid of that word he teaches the word threat physiology there's a word play i use the human word play on anxiety is that you're alert you're nervous and then you're afraid you're trapped and you become angry paranoid and terrorized i mean there's a whole word sequence of it but any of those words that depict fear are just simply subsets of this threat physiology. So the problem is in medicine, we're not acknowledging threat physiology. We're not acknowledging why people's physiology stays elevated. We're treating the symptoms and we're not up to $4 trillion a year in chronic disease cost. So what we're doing is not working, number one. That's one of the elements in the room. It's not working. Second of all, you and I have both seen Many, many, many people heal as they learn to process their input differently, as they increase the resiliency of the nervous system, and they learn to lower their physiology. They, they not only heal, but they thrive. 
Because when you're not fighting off anxiety and anger all the time, you actually can live your life. It's a completely different world. So I was in chronic pain for 15 solid years. <clears throat> and the life you live after pain is unbelievable. How did you get out of it accidentally? So I was in 1990, I've been in practice for about four years. Um, I was, went to one of the top spine fellowships in the world. I was doing complex spine surgery, and I was just used to dealing with stress. The nickname for myself is The Brick. I just call myself The Brick. And I thought, <laughs> it, I thought it was a compliment. I mean, I thought it was a great compliment, and, and it was not a compliment in retrospect. What did you think it meant? I could take my... Oh, that you could take anything, yeah. Take anything. I mean, my attitude was bring it on. Yeah. So I just actually did not know what the word anxiety even meant. I didn't know what the uh. word. I had a patient come into my service when I was 28 years old with back pain and anxiety disorder. I was a second-year resident or third-year resident. I had to go to Harrison's textbook of medicine and look up, what does this word anxiety mean? <laughs> I love that. But I was, but what, what, in retrospect, I was raised in an abusive environment. The whole, my whole role was anxiety. That was my baseline. So I just thought, thought that was normal. Yeah. Then my coping skills was just bring it on. Yeah. So then in 1990, I had a panic attack. And that was about four years after my fellowship, and my stresses were unbelievable. And so at that point, the symptoms started climbing. My feet started to burn. Skin rashes popped up. Um, my ears started to ring even louder. And I developed extreme anxiety, major suicidal depression. I developed a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder, which is manifested by multiple intrusive thoughts. And by 2002, I was suicidal. But I happened to pick up a book in the, about that time called Feeling Good by David Burns. And it's a bibliotherapy for um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And David Burns said to start writing, so I started to write. So after 15 years of trying everything you can imagine, within two weeks after I started these writing exercises, things started to shift. Go, huh. At six weeks, I would say that my obsessive thought patterns and my symptoms were probably 60% better. I still wasn't that happy about it, but, but yeah. I go, okay, there's some hope here. But I didn't know, I didn't know anything. So I thought it was the book. It turns out there's over 2,000 papers um, written on expressive writing. And James Pennybaker started the research in 1986, and the effects on your mental and physical health are unbelievable. But it has to do with these obsessive thought patterns where you can't escape from your thoughts, but you're separating from your thoughts. So about six months later, I dealt with my anger issues, and I didn't think I was angry. I thought I was pretty cool, actually. <laughs> And when I came face to face with my anger, within six weeks, all my symptoms disappeared. What I only realized, so since I started working on Stephen Porter's three years ago, is that I didn't realize what had happened is that anxiety is an activated threat response. You take action to solve the problem causing that threat response. If you can't escape it, then your body keeps you more of a threat response, you become angry. So anger and anxiety are essentially the same thing. And I had some personal issues that were really intense and the anger just exploded. I couldn't control it anymore. Yeah. Within six weeks after I get through the anger passage, why I heal. Every patient I've seen heal, every one of them connects with their anger. And you can't solve it, can't get rid of it, but you put it in its place. And you don't hold on to it. And you learn how to process it pretty much every day. That's a different topic. But the question I'm going to ask you is rhetorical. Nobody answers this, but just for this discussion's sake about, okay, anxiety is massively powerful. It's designed to keep you alive. It's a gift. It is not responsive to control. How do you lower anxiety? 
Good question. And let me, well, let me say something about what you said first about anxiety, which is I really appreciate your wanting to reframe the label of it because that's what happens in the psych world is we get a diagnosis and then we say, and then we use the diagnosis as its own box and limitation. Oh, I have anxiety. This is what I have. But that's not actually explaining anything. Like you said, no. just saying you have anxiety and it's a, it's a result, right? Yeah. It's a result right. of the threat system. And it does a lot. And this is where I think the psychology does come in. Is it is it alleviates the shame and blame we have around the experience. It's a, it's, right. a, it's a natural course of threat. And it then allows us to process the meanings we have associated because at this point in modern society, we have different associations to threat. Like we have the primal survival wiring, but certain people, we react to different triggers, which I believe are connected to core beliefs. So if it's you know unworthiness, then we get a text from a parent that trigger, triggers that unworthiness that triggers the threat. So from my perspective, you know, and, and I'd like to, you know, correct me if you see it differently, the threat response, even though it's primal and survival based, becomes wired and attached to the specific conditioned beliefs that we have because those beliefs are so threatening. They're usually based on these early life, you know, um, attachment scenarios that that are based in survival. But if it's if it's based in, let's say, fears of abandonment, and someone leaves, that's going to be like astronomically, like maybe a hundred times more threatening for some than another. And that's where the meanings start to maybe in the writing, you know, start to get expressed as to what feels so much more threatening than something else. So I think by the conversation, you'll see we're on the exact same page with this. So, but it's going to sound like I'm not for a second. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I'm going to go off track for a second. Go ahead. So this just all hit about maybe about six weeks ago about, um, there's a book called Live Wired by David Eagleman, who goes into the neuroplasticity of the brain. And he points out very clearly that humans are remarkably and uniquely dependent on their parents to survive for a long time, much longer than most mammals. Yeah. And then language takes several decades to really get language in place, concepts or whatever. We are dependent on parents to we can physically survive. And then our environment programs us every second about who we should be and what we're supposed to do. So what happens is that I just wrote a psychology today blog is called quit looking for your authentic self because it's right in front of you. So the psyche has everything to do with everything. In other words, I'm not against the thoughts are your psyche, right? Your perception of life, perception of the world. And by definition, we have to figure out our place in the world, how to survive. We know how to physically survive. But it's an emotional pain is processed in the same way as physical pain. We really don't know how to emotionally survive. Humans don't do this very well. No. So what happens is that we are programmed by every second of our life to this very second. Everything I say to you, everything I do, everything I think has programmed my entire life to this very second. Anytime I'm anxious or angry, it means I've been triggered something in the past that was dangerous or perceived as dangerous. That's how we stay alive. I don't have to learn how to not touch a hot stove every time I walk past the hot stove. I'm not going to try and be friends with the bully at school. I mean... We look at colors, food, taste, smell. Everything means something different to us. We put meaning to everything. The number one thing is that humans are incredibly different. We're not even close to the same. So it's very frustrating that we're so obsessed with trying to make each other the same somehow. Mm -hmm. You mentioned labeling completely covers all that granularity up completely. So I don't know who you are really if I put a label on you. Even a positive label actually covers all that up. Yeah, agreed. Right? So labeling is a disaster. So 
then when it comes down to um, the granularity of who you are as a person is right here, right now. There is no authentic self. So we look at authentic self you know, about being compassionate and caring and giving back, etc. You learn those things, and but we're programmed to be what everybody else has told us to be. Society, teachers, parents, friends, everything coming at us all the time is how we're programmed to be. So we keep searching for this authentic self. It's not there. And most of us don't have perfect programming. We don't get all of our needs all the time. None of us. <laughs> but here's the exciting part of this thing is that from this second on, the key, the key word you mentioned before is awareness. By becoming aware of the programming, not trying to fix it or solve it, just understanding it. It's your source for future growth. And going forward, you can create any authentic self that you want. That's the beauty of it because your brain neuroplastically changes structure. So when you move into this different realm that you and I talked about briefly before the show, where good food, good wines, play, love, spiritual perspective, all those things are your conscious brain. As you move into those, you're moving away from the pain circuits, mental or physical pain circuits. And then as you move into these different circuits, your body's physiology changes dramatically from threat to safety. And every one of my 17 symptoms is gone. We have hundreds of patients with the same story. And it's always around processing anxiety, but especially anger. And they're two separate skill sets. You can't control anxiety and anger. So you learn just to empirically deal with those, separate your identity from those. And then nurturing joy is a different skill set. But we're not taught that either. No. So if you're using the spiritual bypass to counteract, or using self-esteem or accomplishments or whatever to counteract this massive survival response, you're screwed. If you can, can you, David, can you define what you mean by spiritual bypass? Well, what happens, we, we have these unpleasant sensations. We're frustrated, we're angry, we're anxious. All these different things come at us. So we try to just calm ourselves down with you know, perspective and meditation and mindfulness, which is, okay, let's go to spiritual bypass question. So you, if you can allow yourself to calm your physiology down, to allow your brain to expand, you can connect with bigger perspective. If you're using accomplishments, achievements, activities, spiritual journey, et cetera, to bypass this action or reaction. You, you, can't, you, you can't jump to the expansiveness before you've allowed yourself to integrate and feel what's there. Right. But it's also very dynamic. It occurs every day. In other words, it's not yeah. do this, then this. Of so course. It's not linear. Yeah. Right. But see, the problems are taught that it's linear. Yeah. So my patients want to be out of pain. Yeah. Forever. But that's not life, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't spend any time anymore. And I want to say something that you're not going really, to, that this could be very controversial is that I do not believe, I don't, I think trauma therapy is taking a really bad direction. Hmm. And I'll tell you about this in a second. So the reason why I'm saying that is that a good trauma therapist, which I know you are, just learns how to teach people to feel safe and calm. The trouble is with trauma therapy traditionally is that, okay, my mother slapped me when I was eight years old or, did some bad things to me when I was 12 or didn't take care of me when I was three. So the problem is there are trillions of data points that are traumatic. So we start picking a trauma that's the There's cause too trauma. much time spent processing these stories. Right. So I don't let people go back. I can't say I don't let, I can't control people, but I don't <laughs> encourage people to go backwards at all. Yeah. Okay, I'm triggered today. This is my authentic self today. You said something to me, possibly that irritated me. I mean, you didn't, but I mean, let's say you say something that irritates me. Okay, I'm triggered. That's it. I mean, who knows what are my trillions of data points the trigger is coming from? It doesn't yeah. matter. 
So if you're a major league baseball player trying to trying to how to hit a ball, you're trying to develop a skill set that you can hit the ball. So looking backwards, all the reasons why you didn't hit the ball is partially helpful, but the bottom line is you want to hit the ball. And so it's practice, practice, practice. You keep missing. It happens every day. Never no end point to it. But as you develop the skill of calming down your physiology, people heal. So just know, okay, well, first of all, <laughs> before I became aware of my own perfectionism, et cetera, I was triggered all the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So again, the key word, like you pointed before, is awareness. And labels destroy awareness. Psychological diagnoses destroy awareness. Yes. I quote labeling that this trauma is responsible for my life's troubles that screws up awareness. So yeah, I mean, there's some major issues in my life that were bad, but there's also stuff that happened to me every day that wasn't so great either. So your body works mostly at a subconscious level. So all I know is that I'm triggered. Yeah. I mean, I even feel triggered, but also these skin rashes pop up in the back of my wrist or my ears start to ring or my feet start to burn. I may not feel anxious or frustrated, but they're just my body giving me cues that, okay, for some reason I'm triggered. So with trauma therapy, it's, it's good to be aware that your past is impacted on you. It's good to understand your behavioral patterns in general, but going back and analyzing the heck out of your trauma from the past put your brain on the problem and not the solution. Yeah, you stay stuck. You stay stuck. And 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 I'll jump in and say, yeah, so I consider myself to work with trauma, but the reason why I left the traditional psychology path and the, the clinic I was at, et cetera, after all my training is because it did feel very stuck. I wasn't able to be expansive in my thinking. And, and a lot of the people I worked with were stuck on the labels and this, this past processing. And I would say all healing happens in the present. All healing happens with present focused awareness. So the way that I work now is I don't do any intakes. I don't spend a lot of time on history. I spend zero time on history gathering because I trust that whatever is coming up, whatever is being reenacted in current circumstances, you know, I have, I use um, tools to invite people just to check in and, and, and we can talk to our emotions. We can talk to what I would call the heart space. And, and if there's something there from the past that's meant to show, it will show up and it will show up in the present. And then we only need to quote unquote, people use the word processing as if it's a clear definition, but we only need to quote unquote process that as much as it's impacting the present circumstance of what I would call em emotions and beliefs. And, and then, and we always work through present circumstances. So even if it's early life trauma, we can heal it by working through the present dynamics that are triggering us. So I really see it as that connected lineage and that it doesn't, yeah, we don't need to spend more time than we need going back. Yeah, I'm excited. I, you know, I've had very few people just say what you just said. And so I could not have said it better myself. <laughs> You're dead on. I mean, and again, it took me a long time to come around with this. I, I spent 13 years in psychotherapy. That's a long time. Yeah. I was dead. I want to keep my practice. I want to, I keep, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I got worse. But like you said, your attention on the problem. And from a neuroplasticity standpoint, you're actually reinforcing the problem and you're not heading towards a solution. And again, that's why there's two separate skill sets because again, this reaction of anxiety and anger are powerful. You're not controllable. And so you learn to de-energize these things every day, multiple times a day. And then when you have those space, then as you de-energize those, you have space to move forward and nurture joy and spiritual perspective, et cetera. It's back and forth all day long. But as you 
spend all your time trying to analyze and fix the past, it doesn't give you a good life. No. Why well, little saying that to have a good life, you have to live a good life. Yeah. You got it just takes practice and programming. Yes. And then the brain structurally, physically changes, which to me is mind-boggling. Yeah. Went to medical school. We thought the brain was static. We thought that you only lost neurons as you get older. And there's 80 billion neurons. Each neuron is connected to 10,000 other neurons. There's more connections in the brain than there are stars in the universe in, in, in one person's brain. That's amazing. And, and, and not only that, which blows my mind, is they're separated by synapses or spaces. They're not, they're not even connected to each other. I mean, how can that be? So, I mean, the complexity of the brain is incredible. It can adapt to anything. That's what I love about this book, Live Wired, is that he shows how incredible. I mean, I came out of reading this book like there's a beehive in my head of 80 billion bees scrambling for attention every millisecond, trying to get their space and trying to, you know, to, you know, process the information coming into the nervous system. And your nervous system and body is incredibly adaptable because guess what? We survived. We're, we're alive. Mm-hmm. So your brain's intended to take on anything, adapt to it. And if you can survive, you will. Anyway. And well, and what I like about what you said about, you know, because we, you know, you asked me before we started recording, like what was, you know, how could I describe sort of the pivotal shift in my life from pain to, you know, living sort of a, a higher vision? And and one thing I would say, because a lot of trauma therapy, you know, I, look, clinicians have are well-intentioned, but it can actually um, so reenact a process of feeling very disempowered. It can be very disempowering because there can be this idea of of victimization that we need to explore the identity of victim rather than right. going toward the sense of what feels good what lights us up because we're meant if we're really if the goal is to be joyful it, it's to access those emotion energies of excitement of peace of gratitude that actually resonate at higher frequencies we need tools to practice going there and i think the sad truth is a lot of therapists don't actually have those tools for themselves. A lot of them resonate at lower frequencies, which is why they're more capable of of tolerating sadness and things because it's more comfortable for them. But to actually start talking about power and happiness and excitement, a therapist might be like, "Whoa, slow down. We need to right. we need to to process more of the trauma." When it's like, "No, let's let's go toward what lights us up." And because you know, as you go toward the light, the blockages, the shadows in our way will show up naturally. So. Even right. it's not bypassing if you go toward the light with the willingness to be with, because we're only going to be able to go as far, vision as far as as we're open to in the moment. So, you know, some people will tell me that they're not able to visualize even a life without fear because that's just where how the brain is wired. And, and so that's where we start. So if you even just practice going toward the light, we'll start wherever a person is at, but we don't need to stay too long in the darkness, any longer than we need. Right. Yeah, no, I do want to say one thing clear back in the conversation that I didn't, I have a, this is a little different way of looking at things, but, um, and you probably know this better than I do, but, you know, you know, 150 years ago, you know, Freud pointed out that one of the essences of mental health is being comfortable with unpleasant emotions. Yeah. You know, because if, it, you know, if you, what you resist will persist, so as you fight it, you're actually inadvertently, he didn't know the neuroscience back then. That you start you start fighting and analyzing and trying to fix these things, you've actually inadvertently given them a lot of power. So, like uh, per what you just said, you have to let go in order to move forward. Yes. With a spiritual bypass, you got to. So it is a skill set. We this processing actually just reinforces it and makes it worse. So you have to do have to let go to move forward. 
And again, what I've learned, it occurs many times a day. Life keeps coming at us very quickly. And it's really critical to feel the triggers. But what I was trying to say earlier on is that I have learned that the healing journey actually starts by embracing your disbelief. Because that's what's there. In other words, you want to connect to what's yeah. real. Yeah. And your brain said, I've tried everything, nothing's worked. Your brain is designed to look out for danger no matter what. I call it your personal brain scanner. It's always scanning the horizon for danger. So when people heal, it's not about believing David Hanscom or believing in the doctor journey or believing in anybody. It's about connecting with your own capacity to heal. So I say, look, embrace your disbelief and keep it there. Because when you see where you're at, then you can see where you're going to go. That's where hope comes into play. By trying to generate enough belief in David Hanscom, again, you're using rational means to deal with these massive circuits. And so belief is actually anti-inflammatory in healing, but it's actually belief in yourself. You're, you trust in your body to heal, which it does, is the core issue. But when you generate belief to sort of cover up the disbelief, that takes mental energy. Yeah, it doesn't help. It doesn't you help really shift, shift unless you know where you're starting from. And so it sounds yeah. backwards. And I also, you think, I think you already know this. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to be here. I think you feel the same way that we're healthy and thriving. Yes. And we're both trying to get a message out to the world that yes, you can heal. And I don't think either one of us care about if you hear about Dan Atkins or David Hanscom, you know, it, you can heal. You just have to connect to what's actually inside of you and allow your body to heal. So we have resources to help you get onto that track. But the number one factor that predicts healing is engagement. Are you willing to just jump in and just go to work? Forget about what you believe or don't believe. Just start doing the work and let your body heal itself. As a, because people really want to generate enough belief in me or my concepts. It doesn't work. I, and I, don't, I, I think we're seeing the same thing on that. Yeah, absolutely. Because cause ultimately it is about a belief that can only really emerge from within. And right. I, you know, we can't really attach ourselves to systems or labels or people because then we just it develops this it reenacts the kind of dependency that we have from early life on our parents and other people to show us the way but no one else can know what's really within us, what would the power we have within us. And that's really how we heal from the inside out. And, you know, when I talk about going toward the light, what it's an interesting, it sounds paradoxical, but it's like you said, it's manifestation and surrender are two sides of the same coin because it's it's really the process of surrender, of opening up to what's there for us that allows us to to be with, you know, to feel and to start and, and to let go of resistance, which is much easier said than done. But but when we're able to notice what we've been resisting, what we've been fighting so hard against, which is which is maybe the belief that our body can heal or or that we can actually change our life or we can take steps towards more possibility. Once we let go, if or let's say we've been fighting so hard against unhappiness that it's been wired on some level that I'm not supposed to be sad. I'm not supposed to be sad. What happens is you end up chronically sad because you beat yourself up so much for the sadness that you develop all these protections like what we might call anxiety or you actually develop the symptoms of depression because we're not actually willing to just to, to feel through the sadness. But when we develop some tools to sort of what I like to call sort of build the fertile soil for you know an environment to grow towards the light, just like plants do, like if we trust that we're actually naturally wired to grow toward the light, 
then we can just allow those emotion experiences to emerge, um, learn tools to, to, to stop, to let go of resistance. Cause it, it is a practice and I, I practice it every day. And it's for me, you know, it's moving from the head to the heart because those of us who are, you know, heady and, and, and wired to sort of think through problems really need, you know, a reframe to feel our way through problems because a lot of the problems only exist in the attached feelings and meaning. So if, if we allow ourselves to feel through it, that's really how we manifest, I would say, which is, you know, kind of a spiritual sounding word, but that's how we create the life that we want because it starts with being able to feel it. Like, how do you want, right. do you want to feel excited? Do you want to feel joyful? Some we, we chase so many things to try to get the feeling, but we can actually just start by feeling it. And so right. it's allowing ourselves to to work through the the lower frequency emotions that are there and and start to generate the feelings that we want, which will naturally dictate you know the the choices we want to make. Well, you know, this friend of mine who I think you know, Les Aria, has a little saying that you have to feel to heal. Yeah, that means feeling everything. Yeah. So um, let me try something out. I won't I won't go into too much detail because I just finished writing this last night. So I've been thinking about this for a long time about self-esteem versus confidence. Yeah. So self-esteem is a judgment pattern. There's no end point. It keeps your mind going a thousand miles an hour all the time. And you're using a, a conscious means to actually deal with these massive survival reactions. It's a complete mismatch. And a lot of our self-esteem is based on cognitive distortions. Who do people tell us we should be? So this pursuit of self-esteem is a disaster. I think it's actually the essence of chronic disease our need to be a certain way to compensate for this quote dark side which is not the dark side it's a gift anyway so i have the three c's of healing which goes along with what you just said the first one so just visualize a tree and trees got a root system and the soil is your past all of it every second of it so learning to be with the past and using that soil as your nutrition for future growth is connecting but what are you connecting with? Are you connecting with what you feel, in other words, your reactions in the moment, or are you connecting with your ideals or labels, which is disconnecting? Mm -hmm. So connecting with how you feel and how you react to the situations around you, like you said, all you need is the present moment, is the first step. Then training yourself to be with unpleasant sensations, thoughts, feelings, or emotions is a learned skill. So that's where the dynamic healing model comes into place. You learn how to process input differently, learn how to increase the resiliency of the nervous system, learn how to lower your threat physiology. And so as you learn how to process these unpleasant stresses, you gain confidence. That's the trunk of the tree. Yeah. And then finally, where the real growth occurs is creativity. So you have connection, confidence, and create confidence and creativity. And of course, you and I both know that's where the real healing occurs. You can grow any direction you want. Yes. You know how the skills actually grow and allow yourself to flourish. And so that to me is going from, I call it from reactive to creative. So if you're in the past anxious and frustrated, you're reacting to the past. But if you take the letter C out of the middle of the word and put it at the beginning, you have the word creative. Like so it's all based on awareness. We just step back and see what's going on, see where you're at. Then with awareness, you're actually changing your brain to change structure. Anyway, that's my new metaphor. 
I, I love the three C's because I really do think we are all creators. And, you know, I grew up and I didn't feel like a very creative kid. I discovered I had a love for music, but I was so encumbered by, you know, what we're not anymore calling anxiety, but fear conditioning and depression and and, and a lot of physical sim- symptomatology that, you know, with a traumatized nervous system, it sort of locked that creative expression in. It's actually why I fell into a, a substance use pattern because it helped me access these states of creativity that I didn't find access to elsewhere until I started to heal. But I really do believe that is the furthest expression of healing because we get to create our life. We get to bring formlessness to form and um, and to recognize that. I'll add another C word. For me, I love the word conviction because it was like percentages of, you know, I would gain confidence over time and uh, through my years of suffering, but there were core beliefs that stood in my way until I crossed this barrier and started to see, you know, sort of what I could do, or feel the power and feel what I could create, feel the, you know, the the bolstering that I had to move through fear and that, you know, when you watch those waves dissipate, it built this sense of conviction that I could, because if I could heal from pain, I could do fucking anything. And so I really believe that the the possibilities to create my life became limitless in a way that they had never been. Well, I'm excited about what you just said, because I think I mean I think we're saying the same thing. I mean, you have to have some connection with what it is, but you have to have some confidence that you actually yes. deal with it, right? Yeah. And so it's a learned skill set. And I think conviction, by the way, I think to keep it simple, I think conviction is a deeper word for confidence. You yeah. know, you just know I can do this, right? Yeah. I'm convinced. Yeah. So again, I'm this is a new model for me. I'm just trying this out conceptually, because I've been thinking about this for a lot of years, as you know, with the polyvagal theory, the problem is when you're reacting, your brain's actually physically offline. Your thinking centers actually go from the, your blood supply goes from your neocortex or thinking centers right into the midbrain. You actually can't think, you can't actually, you cannot be creative until you get into safety physiology. And so that's where I'm sort of excited about the model. And again, I'm taking really dead aim at this thing called self-esteem. It's a way of trying to bypass all this other stuff. But by being with every aspect of your past, another metaphor I like to use is that of snow skiing. Are you a snow skier at all? Do you like I am ski? actually, yeah, big snow skier. Well, so you know you can't really ski until you know how to stop, mm-hmm. right? If you can stop and you can't <clears throat> ski a train that's steeper, then you're able to navigate where you can still stop, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so same thing with the, all these, you know, massive survival reactions that keep coming at us every day. We know how to de-energize them more quickly than you're free to create. So anyway, that's where the real healing occurs is that if you move into creativity and away from the pain, again, the pain is your source of creativity, right? I mean, a lot of things from the past that are there. And if you're trying to, you know, analyze it, fix it, whitewash it, whatever you want to do, it, it takes the energy you need to actually be creative. Yeah, you know, it, it, it trauma fuels creativity, but not from staying within the drama of the story, right. but allowing, but allowing sort of um, the end because it's really it's energy. I think at the root that you know uh, the source material of trauma is is energy, and we can channel that energy to create. We can create beautiful things that with light and dark, you know. But we can allow ourselves to feel the shadows without going into that shame and stuckness. And I think your idea about self-esteem is is a good one because it, it, if we just let go of that, we let go of the expectation of needing to be something. 
right. we can just allow ourselves to feel something. And then right. we can create from that place of, right. you know, of what I would say being, you know, coming into this world already whole. We have these conditions and experiences, but there's nothing we need to make out of them. There's nothing we really need to achieve. We just right. have the freedom to create. That's right. what I believe we're here to do. And you do agree that creativity comes from awareness. Yeah, I I, I feel that we are... I use the word intuition in my work because I I um, believe that we have access to a different source of wisdom than comes from the thinking brain, which is very typically fear conditioned. Um, and when we start to move down into the heart space, like if you ask artists where where their inspiration comes from, they're not going to say they're thinking because it, it's just flowing through them when they're in a state of flow. So right. I really believe there is a source of knowing a source of allowing information to flow through when we when we expand into the awareness that we are not just our thinking brain that that's not right. really the source of our identity we can right. tap into a different source of flow and it does come from awareness yeah well i'm excited i mean i, I haven't tried this tree metaphor out on many i haven't tried these three seeds out of many people but at least that's whether you agree with them or not at least i was able to explain it so i'm yeah. I, i'm just been thinking about this for a long time i want because basically I just been really bothered by the self-esteem thing versus confidence for a long time. And I think confidence comes from just being with the darkest part of who you are and being fine with it. Yeah, it, it's it not be. it's not based on some expectation of having to achieve a state. It's really just about being with what's there, which Correct. which sounds paradoxical because it's like, well, but I don't feel good enough, so I have to be somewhere else. But right. if we actually just be with the not good enough, firstly, the first thing you recognize is you're not the not good enough feeling. That's not who you are. And right. that allows more space to recognize that you can be with that and you can be with all the other feelings that show up too, which, which you know, sort of creates more space to to live the life you want. And and that breeds confidence because you see the results play out in your circumstances as well. Well, and people are still going to be wondering, well, why are we talking about, I mean, this is psychology, obviously. The psyche has a lot to do with this. So what does this have to do with chronic pain? I just want to remind the listeners, we're talking about your body's physiology. When your thought patterns are unpleasant, untoward, you spend a lot of energy trying to bury these sensations, your body just fires right up and you get sick. And so this is not hard to solve. So what I'd love to do, if it's okay with you, is summarize some of the things I that I offer people to um, that are very much yeah. aligned with what you do. Yeah, go so, ahead. you know, I was in I wrote my first book in 2012 called Back in Control. The second edition is called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, which basically tells my story. And it's been helpful for people because, first of all, they realize they're not alone. I'm a major spine surgeon, which crippled by anxiety, which just blew me away. And once people understand that, the, that anxiety is in everybody, why take it personally, it makes a difference. Then, so I developed... So between my book and my website, backincontrol.com, I put a course together um, that helped hundreds of people get better on their own. They, they, very few people saw psychologists or coaches. They get better on their own. And then I evolved what's called the Doc Journey course, which is a much more um, physiological-based course, much clearer, much faster. People have been getting better much more quickly. It's called the Doc Journey. Um, you find it at the docjourney.com. It's a computer-based course. I recommend people basically spend about 15 minutes a day with it. That's it. It takes repetition to reprogram your brain. And then my wife also developed an app called the Doc Journey app based on our workshops that we were creating these shifts that we talked about within three to five days. So it was structured. It was safe. 
and 80% of people healed during those three to five days. And we could not figure out what, what was going on until we realized they were going from a physio physiological state of stress, et cetera, to play and connection. So it's a profound shift in physiology and people healed. So the app is based more on the course. <clears throat> then as part of the process, I, I offer group coaching. About half the people just heal on their own. They want you to find out that this is not very hard. That's number one. Number two, the people that break out of these circuits go, it's disturbingly simple. It always does go faster with a coach or somebody like yourself, no question about it. And then some people just need a coach. It's just hard to engage in these concepts so you have some support and structure and direction. I quit my surgical practice because we're treating pain structurally, not physiologically. Turns out anxiety is the pain. And we're doing major spine surgery on anxiety and the result of a, of a back surgery for back pain is about 22%. Plus, we're hurting people. So I actually quit my practice to do what we're doing right now. And I say, look, the one message I want to get out to the world, that this thing we call anxiety is just threat physiology. And by learning how to regulate your physiology, you can heal. Thank you so much for all of that, David. And, and I will put all that in the show notes and I will be happy to add those resources to my website as well because I think it's really important. Um, and I know we're uh, reaching the end of our time here. So what I'll just say uh, or what I'll just ask is if, if there's anything else you'd like to share or, or I, you already mentioned some of, I think, where people can find you, but if you have specific places where people can find you, if you'd like them to. And anything else yeah, you'd like to I say? I mean, I think the one the one spot that has um there'll be a resources page on the um on the show notes, but basically backincontrol.com, one word, back B-A-C-K in control.com is sort of the is sort of the, the hub of, of everything else that I do. You'll see a resources page that links to all sorts of stuff. And so my psychology to blog, psychology today blog to I'm sorry, psychology today blog has had like 1.2 million views on it and it's all about the name of the blog, Anxiety, Another Name for Pain. So my whole process is switched very much over to mental health being the main issue. Yeah, I love it. Good, good. And yes, I know you have an extensive blog and podcast that people should absolutely check out. Um, well, I just want to thank you so much for being here, David. It's been a pleasure to connect um, and to have this time together after years of, of, of watching and being influenced by your work. And um, yeah, maybe we'll do it again soon because I'm sure we have uh, a lot of material to keep, to keep processing together. And uh, with that, I'll just, I'll uh, thank you and, and uh, hope to see you again soon. Yeah. Thank you. I enjoyed this very much. Thanks for listening. If you like the episode and would like to support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review anywhere you listen. And if you'd like to connect with me directly, feel free to reach out on Instagram at drdaniel__atkins or on my website, drdanielatkins.com, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter to stay updated on all happenings. I'd love to hear from you. Until then, may you be the light, the frequency, and the vessel for your highest vision.